We're in Matthew 2 this morning, and uh, we're just going to go through the first dozen verses or so. So there's a pew Bible right in front of you if you need to look through. Now, if you were in charge of revolutionizing the world, where would you start? Let's, let's just say that you're, you're part of this class entitled Revolution 101, okay? And in Revolution 101, the first project that you are to come up with is a plan as to what you're going to do to start a revolution. So a, a couple questions are going to go through your head right about this project. Like, how are you going to go about it? What resources are you going to need? What kind of strategy are you going to use to influence the worldview of the entire world? What place, city, town are you going to start in to make this your home base so that you have the greatest impact from that epicenter out? Right? What, what type of talent uh, are you going to recruit? What kind of media are you going to use? I mean, Google Ads, uh, whatever, you know, you, you can use all that stuff. Who are you going to target as your key demographic that you're going to count on to kind of start this this kind of revolution and to spread it out? Who are you going to start with? And then what kind of people, you know, with, with what certain type of gifts to recruit finances or to recruit some uh, kind of these type A entrepreneurial kind of people to kind of push forward your revolution? Now, before you implement all any of those plans, let's just talk, uh, let me just give you a verse here about... Uh, what God tells us in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 through 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our Lord, for he will abundantly pardon. This is kind of key here. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So when we think about God's plan and how he executed his plan for Jesus incarnate at the time that Jesus arrived over 2,000 years ago, and the place Jesus arrived, a little town called Bethlehem, it makes no sense, does it? Because you would think that he would probably put him in Rome. It's the Roman Empire, you would think that he would put him in Rome. Right? You would, you would think that God's plan, he would put him there with lots of riches, with lots of influence. You would think God would probably even wait until nowadays when we have much better telecommunications, much better technology, so that in a span of minutes, everyone in the world would know about Jesus. You would think that he would do it now. Why did he do it back then? And it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to have come now more so than back then with our technology and with the things we're capable of doing here. So what kind of strategy was God employing? And as we read in Isaiah, his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. Now, Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1 here. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. I think we can all appreciate that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and His ways are not our ways and even understand that to a certain degree. But what's up with these wise men thing? Like, what's up with that in the story? It does, doesn't this just kind of make it a cutesy children's story rather than an account of God? Wise men. 
Right? But the wise men mentioned here aren't simply just to entertain us or to, to make this story better. It, it's actually much deeper than that. And to have a better understanding of the wise men, you have to go back to the book of Daniel. In the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, we don't have a lot of time to go into depth about this, but understand that Daniel was counterpart to the Medo-Persian Empire where these wise men are from. Now, who were these wise men? Well, these wise men were trained as astronomers. These were men that were trained as astrologers. They were really deep thinkers who were seeking intellectual depth. And they would go all around the world looking for more intellectual depth. That's what they were about. And sure, you would have some imposters who, who weren't genuinely going about their life as thinkers. They were just trying to capitalize on that position. But you'll find these wise men in Daniel, not, not these wise men because that would make them very old, but wise men like these you'll find in Daniel. And Daniel references the prophet Jeremiah. And there's this connection to the wise men and the Messiah. And so the wise men sought knowledge in, in their lives, in their deeds, in, in their minds, and they looked to a lot of sources, including the Old Testament Scriptures. So they would look through these books, and they would pour through these ancient manuscripts, and some of these wise men studied the Old Testament. They knew of a coming Messiah. They knew of that. And some of these wise men were looking for the answers that, uh, that the questions that arose when they were studying the Old Testament. They wanted these answers. They were deep thinkers. And as they looked into the sky, because they were trained as astronomers and as astrologers, their depth of knowledge of astronomy came to match that of their knowledge of the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, there was this, this talk about this king of the Jews. And so as an Old Testament scholar and as a, a expert of astronomy, these kind of things just kind of merged together and something clicked for them and it touched them so deeply that they went on this search for the king of the Jews. Now these guys aren't nomads. These guys are actually men of big influence. These guys were kingmakers with a ton of influence. In history, these wise men were used to anoint kings, to choose kings. So back to our original question, if, if you were in charge of revolutionizing the world, if you were in charge of that, where would you start? Would you start with a bunch of uneducated shepherds? So that's where Jesus was born, right in the middle of the, this audience of shepherds. Well, I don't know about the childbirth, but afterwards, like there's shepherds there, right? And then would you start with some wise men who are from like who knows where? that don't necessarily support your worldview. You don't know where they stand, and yet they come around. So here you have these shepherds, uneducated folk, and then you have these wise men who don't necessarily back your worldview, and yet this is where God starts. This is where He starts. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, Paul records for us what God said to Moses. He said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's just our God. Who He chooses, who He starts with. Think about the Jews. God chose the Jews, a slave race, to be His chosen people. A slave race. And, and when you look at the people God chooses, it's not the same people that we would choose to kind of push forward a movement or push forward our thinking. right? And it's a, 
it shouldn't be a surprise to us because th- that same God is the same God we, cho- we have now and, and who he chooses, right? He chooses the lowest of the lows and, and, and he chooses people that had jobs like shepherds, which was the lowest of the low. And he chooses people like wise men who are not his chosen people. And last week we looked at Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Let me just kind of throw that verse out to you again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. God knew exactly what he was doing. God knew exactly the pre-appointed time that he uh, appointed with, with the, the Trinity there. And he, when he wanted to reveal himself, who he wanted to reveal himself to, what he wanted to do, how he wanted to do it. And so he knew that he was going to reveal himself to shepherds. He knew he was going to reveal himself to wise men. And God's ways are just kind of mysterious. You know, who he chooses, what he does, and, and how and where. All that stuff is just really mysterious. But that's part of what makes him God. Right? And he, he's sovereign, and, and things work out according to his will, even when they don't make any sense to us. Now, when we think of the wise men, I think that some of us might be influenced more by the storybooks we've read and the Christmas cards and cartoons and coloring books and all that kind of stuff, more than actual history and more than actual scriptures in the Bible. And why I say that is because of all those things, we have this number three. Three wise men. But when you read the Bible, it doesn't say anything about three wise men. Kind of the conclusion that people have drawn is because of the gifts, frankincense, myrrh, and gold, and because, oh, they had three gifts, so there must be three wise men. Some also have this belief that they were kings, right? Remember that song, We Three Kings of Or? Three kings. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that they are kings. So we have these different ideas, right? And we also have names for these kings. Melchior, Caspar, Balthazar. And, or in Spanish, Melchor, Gaspar, y Balthazar. Do you guys I, I love those songs, right? <laughs> when I first learned that, I was like, Melchor, Gaspar, y Balthazar son los reyes malos. Which is like the bad kings. But it's, that, those aren't the words. It's reyes mayos. But... The, the, that I, but I thought that they were bad kings when I was growing up. But anyway, but I remember those mission trips down to Mexico during Christmas and singing all these songs and stuff like that. And anyway, these wise men, they became three. They became kings. They got names. And then they also got personalities and characters and things like this. I don't know how this is not in the Bible, but they have names. They even have sainthood. And so Balthazar was, was the oldest one. He was the smaller one. He's the more gentle one. He had this long white beard. He wore crimson robes. That's Balthazar. And his gift was supposedly gold. How they know this, I don't know. But it's not in the Bible. And Melchior was the other guy. He had this darker beard, and his gift was supposedly myrrh. And Casper, he was the friendliest ghost. The friendliest ghost you know. That, that was Casper. He's the guy with no beard. Right? And he was said to be the emperor of the Orient and ruled all over the Oriental lands. I think this is the only one that's accurate because the, the people from the Orient are the only ones that can't grow that beard. So he supposedly brought frankincense. So no mention of these guys in the Bible, right? Yet we have all these stories about them. We have names about them. We have all this stuff. We're, we're calling them kings. They're on cathedrals all over the world on the stained glass giving us a story about them. There are obituaries about these guys. All this stuff. 
But how much more of it is legend more than it is fact? Because I think we've created more of these fictional characters who become saints to some. And what, what, what has been made to be true is not actually reality at all. And there are some things we can learn from these wise men without going too far with those types of assumptions, but they're obviously things that we can learn from wise men. And when we think of these wise men, we, we, we tend to think of three, all of the nativity scenes and all that stuff, and we also tend to think of camels and uh, robes and hats and all that kind of stuff. And I think all that stuff is debatable except for probably the clothing because that's probably what they wore were these robes and these types of hats. There's a higher likelihood that they, wore, they, they actually rode in on white Persian horses than it is camels. Because this is during this Medo-Persian era where these guys are kind of coming from, this area that they're coming from, and this is where these kind of kingmakers are coming from. And they would ride on white Persian horses. And also, these guys aren't likely to travel alone. I've seen some cartoons. Have you guys seen that Three Kings cartoon where they have like different roads and they're all kind of coming and they're all riding by themselves though and then they're following the star the whole time and then they finally get to the place and they, boom, they bump into each other. Oh, look at you two other kings or something. But that's not how it was. These are very prominent people. These are kingmakers. These are very prominent people. They would have quite an entourage. They would have a huge entourage. Right, we have this picture in our head that it's just these three guys riding on camels, but that's not accurate. Right, these guys have a posse. A posse of white Persian horses. It's pretty classy. It's like all the town cars or something coming up, right? And it's just this cavalry of white Persian horses and uh, this entourage into Jerusalem. So this isn't like these three guys snuck into Jerusalem without people noticing. You had to notice these guys. Check them out. The Rolls Royce of horses is coming through. I mean, this, this is big stuff. I mean, think about it. Guys wouldn't travel by themselves back then. If you're carrying gold, it's like traveling through Oakland. Like, you're not going to do that. That's silly. Right? You got your white Bentley and you're going to travel with a bunch of gold by yourself? Come on. You're not doing that here. Right? Everyone knew these guys were in town. Everyone, they had all the bling on them. Everyone knew they were here. Verses 2 and 3, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And you notice that Herod was troubled. Now this word troubled is very descriptive. When you, think, when you read this word trouble, it's trying to get the idea of moving parts. Right? That, that it's so troubled that there's commotion within, that there's no calm, that you're just shaking and you're unsettled. There's this disturbance, right? Disturbance in the force. It's, it's not cool. Herod is troubled. And what we know from history is that Herod's quite a character. Herod is a very successful ruler. He is a, a, a visionary. He was in power for over three decades. You're, you're not a bad king for over three decades, right? And he built these beautiful buildings. He rebuilt the temple, right? The Herod's temple. And that western wall that you see there now is attributed to Herod. That western wall, the wailing wall, that's part of Herod's temple. And so there he, he also brought in water supply um, to Jerusalem. 
He's also the one that created that port in Caesarea. I mean, this guy is a, a visionary. He, he did things way before his own time. But something really disturbing about Herod was his paranoia. This guy was extremely paranoid. As a ruler of Jerusalem, he, he just was so paranoid. He had one of his wives killed because he felt that she was a threat to his throne. He had two of his sons killed. But he's like, not even early on, it's like towards his death. And he had two of his sons killed. And so here's, here's this guy who's just full of spite, full of malice, full of cruelty. And with, with such paranoia over his power, now you have these wise men who come from afar who are asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where do you think this paranoid king is going to take that? What do you think he's going to do with that? And you talk about bringing up a sore subject. Right? He had his wife killed. He had just two kids killed. And now you got this guy. Where is he born king of the Jews? He's after him. Now there was a saying from his emperor, Emperor Augustus, about Herod that, that it was preferable to be Herod's pig than his sons. Right? And, and in the Greek, the word for pig is hus. And the word for son is huios. So it was kind of this play on words, right? Right? That Herod, that it was preferable to be Herod's hus than to be his huyas. So this play on these words, and it was also this insult to the Jews because pigs are not kosher, and so it was this play on words with this insult attached to it. Now I'd like us to take a look at the questions from the wise men. Because I think this question is actually really insightful. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? You ever notice that the best questions are the simplest questions? People who who think really wisely when they they really aren't, when they think that they're wise, but they're really not, they ask all these questions, but they're not really all that simple of a question. It seems like the wisest people just ask the simplest questions. Now, why did Jesus say in chapter 18, verse 3 of Matthew, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that said? There's something to be said about real wisdom, the simplicity of the wisdom. Now, don't be so fast as to self-proclaim yourself wise or to self-proclaim yourself smart. If our story this morning is beyond your wisdom or intellect because it's too simple or it's too whatever, I recommend that you be careful. You be careful. That you would take a moment to just kind of humble yourself and ask God to reveal Himself to you. Because if you do, God will. If you ask God to reveal Himself to you, He will. You ask the simplest question of God, and you don't think of yourself to be so wise or so smart that that you don't need any of this stuff. And just perhaps you might be ignorant of things. Maybe. And you ask Him, a question, a simple question, can you reveal yourself to me? See, this is the God who's omnipresent. Now, how many of us have been at more than one place at one time? This is the God who's omniscient, and who of us here can answer every question asked of us correctly? And This is a God who's omnipotent, who created the heavens and the earth. What have we done in our own power? 
Wise people examine, they investigate, they, they, they look deeper, they inspect, while unwise folks, they kind of sit back and be cynical. Right? And it started with a simple question from the wise men. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We're not told who they asked, but many assume that they went straight to Herod, the king, to ask the question, and I don't think that they did. I don't think they did that. The Bible doesn't say they did that. And I think that, I think that it, of, of course, it made its way to Herod because he reacted in such a way. But I think that they were asking the simple questions whenever they got a chance to. So as soon as they were able to have a conversation with people outside of their entourage, I think they started asking that simple question. Where's the king of the Jews? Right? And for sure, people were asking about who they were. So obviously, these questions would just kind of go back and forth about, hey, who are you guys? Where are you from? And all this stuff. And because this is not an everyday occurrence, right? Persian white horses riding through town. What's going on here? So as traders are coming through or merchants are coming through those trade routes or merchant routes, I'm sure that they would interact and they would say, hey, do you know what this king of the Jews is? We've been studying the stars and we've been studying the Old Testament scriptures. All this stuff is making sense and we're led that way. But do you happen to know where he is? And then when they would get to the city gates and the guards are there, and they, I don't think they would say like, hey, uh, you know, where, where's the restaurant? They, they went from afar and they're here at the guards and they're going to ask them, hey, do you know where the king of the Jews is at? Or, do you know where he's at? And those guards were probably thinking, oh, he's, they're probably thinking of Herod. So yeah, Herod's, his palace is right there. There he is. But... But, but these guys are, are, are really curious. They really want to know. So it's not like they're just reserved to ask Herod, I don't think. And these guys are probably quite a few people. Right? Where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is their mission. They probably spread out all over the place trying to find him. Find him. Right? They're all over the place. Verses 4 through 6. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now you notice who Herod summoned to himself. right? Who he summoned to himself to, to figure out, Who are these wise men? What are they talking about? Who does he call? The most religious folks of the day. Right? The chief priests, the scribes. He calls the people that kind of know these biblical answers. And isn't it fascinating that the religious people can give these precise biblical answers to Herod, but they seem totally indifferent of the possibility of the arrival of a Messiah. Totally indifferent. Not a big deal. Oh yeah, this is where it says it. Thanks. But we want to get back to playing backgammon or whatever. Right? They, they know the biblical answers. They know what's in there. Yet it's just kind of, well, no big deal. Here it is. Like, go deal with it now. And the religious people of the day, they, they knew their Bible, but they missed it. They totally missed it. Right? Well, while those who aren't churched, astronomers, astrologers from afar, are eagerly seeking Christ. It's just kind of sad. It's sad. For those of us who are churched, for those of us who have some biblical knowledge, have we become indifferent in seeking Jesus Christ? 
where you know where it is in the Bible. Oh, yeah, the Bible says this about hope, and it says this about comfort and all this stuff and peace and all this. Oh, yeah, let's put it aside. But I can tell you everything where it's at, but it's not really a part of my life. We're indifferent about it. And for those of you who are seeking something, but you just don't know what it is or who it is, I encourage you to keep seeking and you will find Jesus. Right? Continue on your investigate, investigative spiritual journey. Ask God to reveal himself to you, and he will. Verses 7 through 12. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, God, and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's lying there. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasure, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. I want to point out some verbs to you in verse 11 because they're pretty important here. The verbs saw, fell down, and worshipped. But before we kind of talk about that, I, I just want you to imagine in your mind the thrill that these guys must have had to walk into that house and to finally meet Jesus. But at the same time of this thrill, that there's also this uncertainty. Because it's probably a really humble home, and they're thinking, King of the Jews? But at the same time, really thrilled, because this is where they're led. right? Because all this time that they put in, all this effort, all these resources, it finally took them to this place where they got to meet Jesus, and it brought them some satisfaction. But then to see that it brought them to this place of humble means, it probably gave them some reservations as well. And do you notice that Jesus is not in a manger as a baby anymore? Another one of those Christmas card cartoon things of where the three kings are and stuff like that, who aren't kings and have names and have personalities and all that stuff. Not in the Bible. Right? So, so all these nativity scenes that we have of the wise men, uh, three of them, which the Bible doesn't say three either, at this manger scene, offering their gifts to baby Jesus in the manger, when verse 11 tells us that they went into the house and that they saw the child there with Mary, his mother. See, Mary, Mary had moved from that birthing room of a manger place to her home now, right? She's not at Kaiser anymore. She's, she went home. And so shepherds got to see the manger, but not the wise men. The wise men got to see the home, right? And so you see that... that some stuff is inaccurate as to how things are portrayed, whether in Christmas decor or in Christmas cards or in toys or in books and things, how a lot of the stuff is not biblical. It's just kind of folklore. Right? And some commentaries hypothesize that this could have been a year to a year and a half after the birth of Jesus, meaning that Jesus was a toddler entering his terrible twos. And... I love toddlers. Toddlers, that is my favorite age, toddlers. That, I see some head nuts. We're awesome. Um, and yes, they are tough, but it's the most fun. I really like that age. And Jesus was a toddler. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus as a toddler. Many people think of Jesus as a baby or, you know, as a, but as a toddler. 
fat chunky legs stumbling across and stuff and I, and I'm sure that he doesn't he didn't behave like toddlers like like my toddlers at a restaurant um man the staff and the interns yesterday we had a, a celebration dinner together I brought my family um so my kids were there I was um not happy with their behavior so I sent them home early and um, so, so my toddlers are not like toddler Jesus at all. My preschooler is not preschooler Jesus at all. And I'm not adult Jesus. And, and we're sinful people just like Jesus. And I mention this because I kind of want to throw out this protection for my children. Um, from any false expectations to be put on them because they're pastor's kids. And I think this church is pretty good about it because you guys are pretty good with my wife not having expectations of her to be a typical pastor's wife. But I need to throw this out there just to clear it off my chest. That, you know, if you don't correct other people's children, don't, don't go correcting mine because they're my kids. Right? Just don't do that. If you don't do that anyway, don't pick on mine. And please don't tell them that they shouldn't do something or should do something or act a certain way because they're a pastor's kid. They're a kid. I've actually trained my eldest daughter to report back to me when someone says something like that to her so that I can show that person her dad's ninja skills. Right? And I've also trained her to tell me when someone tells her to keep a secret because her reward is very big when she does that. It's like she's going to win the lottery. I'm not telling you what her favorite things are, but that's her reward. If someone says, oh, keep this a secret, she's going to be so excited to come tell me because she's going to get this humongous thing that we've been talking about. Or if somebody touches her inappropriately or threatens her or the family, anything of that kind of nature, the culprit will answer to me. She will not keep that secret. She's going to tell me because that's my little girl. Right? And my, my kids, yeah, they are pastor's kids, but, but I don't go around to you, right? And you're a Christian. I'm saying, like, isn't God your father? You shouldn't be acting like that. You shouldn't do that. Right? I don't, I don't shoot on you, so don't go shooting on my kids. Right? So, anyway, back to toddler Jesus. They saw the child with Mary, his mother. And I wonder how long they just kind of watched Jesus and they just observed Jesus. Right? And I wonder how amazed that they were. And they, so, so they saw and then they fell down. That next verb, they fell down. And I've seen many a toddler, and no toddler makes me want to fall down in adoration over them. Right? Not even my own. It's my favorite age. I think they're incredibly cute. But no toddler, even my own, makes me fall down at their very presence. And some toddlers I look at and I'm like, oh, he's really cute or she's really adorable. And there are some that I really can't say that about. So, so I just say like, oh, look at him. <laughs> oh, would you look at her? Like, she's so girl, right, or whatever. Um, you don't want to lie, right? You don't want to lie. You've got to be creative. So, but these wise men fall down. Right? They fall down. And, and when you really encounter Jesus, when you really meet Jesus, you will fall down. How do you know when you've really met Jesus? You'll bow. 
That's one way you'll know. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's going to come a day when every knee is going to bow. Right? Upon meeting Jesus, your knee will bow. You will have no choice. The question is whether you're going to meet him now while you're physically alive and and can say that and make that decision and whether you remain spiritually alive with him everlasting or if you're going to meet him at death and you're going to bow and if you've decided against Jesus at physical, in physical life uh, until your death, it determines the rest of your spiritual life moving forward. So either way, you're, you're going to bow. But ultimately, our, our knees will bow to Jesus. So, so what's our response to Jesus during Christmas? Right? Is it just that our, what our culture has dictated to us, that that's what we present, that's what we stand for? Is it all about exchanging gifts or, or having Christmas dinner together? Is it all about empty religiosity? And I suggest that, that Christmas is a time to see Jesus, to fall before Jesus and to worship Jesus. And the wise men, they, they fell down, they saw, they fell down, they worshiped Jesus. Some of us have been to the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem, and which is on the Palestinian side, right? And so a lot of Palestinians are Christians. They're our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we go back there, we will have a Palestinian tour guide because they don't allow the Israel tour guides to go in there and the Palestinian tour guide will make you sing O Little Town of Bethlehem and other Christmas songs even in the heat of summer you will sing these it is a very weird thing but at that church the entrance is purposely built it's less than three feet tall you have to bend to enter it they've purposely built it that way and in coming to Christ, we come on bended knee, falling before him, worshiping him, not because we're forced to because of the structure, but because he's worthy. He's worthy to be worshipped. They worshipped. And at Mary's house, I, I, I doubt they had a, a sound system. They didn't have a drum kit. They didn't have a band, a grand piano, and all that stuff. And who knows if, if this group could even sing on key. They didn't even sing in the same language. They, they didn't even have the same songs, probably. It didn't matter. They worshipped. They worshipped. And I hope that's something that we can focus on as a church as well. Right? That, that, that what's happening up here on stage isn't the exclusive worship of God. It's all of us. All of us join together worshipping the Lord. And so how often do we fall down before the, before the Lord and worship here? That we really worship. And in real worship, you, know, you, you lose concern of everything else happening around you. Right? You, you lose concern of your surroundings and as a wise man he didn't care that he was a man of prominence he didn't care that he had all these guys serving him and that he was in this really humble home in mary's house he fell down and he worshiped and after he worshiped what did they do opening their treasures they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh they gave out of their worship They gave something that cost them and something that was appropriate for that time. And we can go go into depth as to what each of these gifts meant. But the important thing here in verse 11 is that they saw, they fell, they worshiped, and they gave. 
So many times I hear younger people asking each other, you know, hey, what are you getting? What are you getting for Christmas? Hey, what are you getting? What do you want? And people ask kids this question all the time too, like, oh, what are you getting for Christmas? What do you want? And all this stuff. And I mean, I've tried so hard in my home to have that a non-question. It's so hard because they have grandparents. And they need a lot of training. The real question is, what are you giving? That's what I want my kids to learn. What are you giving? Not what are you getting. What are you giving? My God taught me how to give more than to receive. That it's more blessed to give than to receive. Acts chapter 20 verse 35. I believe that. Right? I teach my children that. It's more blessed to give than to receive. It's not about what you're getting or, or what you're not getting. It's about what you're giving. It's about what you are giving. My kids don't get gifts from us during Christmas. They get them year-round. Right? So it's not a special time like, oh, it's set for this time. Where we're it's set for them to give. This is your opportunity to give, not to receive. So I want to encourage you, if you're still seeking, to keep seeking. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Because Jesus will answer. Jesus is a giver. He wants to give you the gift of life. And really look into what Jesus claimed. Not just this superficiality of religion and all this kind of like religious top stuff. Go deeper. And if some of you would put the same energy into seeking God as you did in your vacations or in your TV shows or in your sports or in your physical health or in your career or your education, whatever it may be that you put a ton of effort in, if you would put that much effort into seeking God, you would be so much more wise. But there are so many who are like the religious people, the scribes and the Pharisees that Herod called into his court to try to figure out this whole thing that just make empty claims. Maybe you can open the Bible. Maybe you know the Bible stories. Maybe you even know the chapter and verse of where these things are. But are you really a Christian? Or is it just kind of intellectual knowledge that you have? Has it sunk inside your heart? And, and maybe you're even able to recite different creeds and stuff, right? Like saying, yeah, I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son and Lord, uh, who conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, and you can say all these things, and suffered under Pontius Pilate. You can, uh, you can recite the whole creed. You can recite the entire Lord's Prayer. You can do all these different things. But do you know Jesus? Have you seen Him? Have you fallen down? Have you worshipped Him? Have you given to him. Do you really know Jesus just as you know your loved ones? Right? Is, is Jesus really your Savior or is it just kind of this cultural religiosity thing that's going on? Are you sure of your relationship with Jesus just as sure as you would die if you didn't breathe and your heart didn't beat anymore? Are you hungry and thirsty for something? Because only Jesus satisfies that hunger. Only Jesus satisfies that thirst. Right? Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And for those of you seeking, I encourage you to keep seeking. Seek and you will find. That's what it says. 
If you want to know where you stand with God, ask yourself this question. Self, who am I in love with? What am I in love with? Right? Whatever we are in love with is what we worship, is what we adore. Is it our money? Is it our talents? Is it our possessions? Is it our life? Is it our traditions? Is it our image? What is it? Have you ever seen Jesus? Have you ever fell down, worship, and given to him? Now, what shall we give? The wise men gave out of their worship. They gave something that cost them, and they gave something that was appropriate. So, sure, this could be financial. Sure, this could be in terms of service and time and effort. But something I think that is more significant than all of that combined is the giving of yourself, the giving of your heart, the giving of your life, of your entire being. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter wrote, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Where is Jesus in your life? All aspects of your life, not just your faith life, not just your religious life. Is Jesus part of your emotional life? Is he part of your physical life? Is he part of your thought life, your sex life, your financial life? Is he all-encompassing and keep seeking. Right? And may we embrace the true meaning of Christmas, seeing Jesus, falling down before Jesus, worshiping Jesus, and giving to Him. Let's pray. God, thank You for such a beautiful plan that You drew out, that You orchestrated so that we can have a relationship with You, that You would redeem our lives. I pray, Lord, for anyone who is seeking you here, Lord, that you would bless their efforts. For those of us who are more like the scribes and the chief priests, Lord, I pray for forgiveness. That it wouldn't just be gaining knowledge about the Bible, but that we would have a relationship with you that is deep. In Jesus' name, amen.